The Center for Fiction is a home for readers and writers in Brooklyn and beyond, offering a bookstore, library, members' lounge, and cafe, along with hybrid author events, writing workshops, reading groups, and more. Celebrate storytelling in all its forms at centerforfiction.org. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. On March 30th, 2023, something took place that's never happened in the, let's be fair, pretty short, history of the United States. A former president, Donald Trump, was indicted by a grand jury. And on April 4th, 2023, Trump was arrested and attended an arraignment at the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. Another first. Because that's not too far away from the Harper's offices, I went down there with a microphone to speak to those who'd gathered to gape at the spectacle or stand up for their deeply held beliefs. That bonus episode will come later this week. The day after I mingled with the protesters and counter-protesters and tourists, I spoke with Jeff Charlotte, whose new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, offers anthropological and political insights into the Trump era. The book is divided into the three phases of the Trumpocene. The prosperity gospel of 2016, the Gnostic gospel of 2020, and the Age of Martyrs, which began on January 6, 2021, when Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed as she attempted to climb through a window in the U.S. Capitol building. Now, Charlotte argues, Trump has taken Babbitt's place on the cross. We discuss what Trump's crimes mean to his faithful flock, fascism, and the importance of flags. The first question is is something that I think a lot of people have wondered for a long time, people who aren't on the right, who aren't conservative. Why, why don't evangelicals care that Trump had an affair with a porn star? Or what would it take for them to believe that Trump had an affair with a porn star? Well, you left the third possibility out is that they do care. And, that ah. <laughs> and I, I, that's a little glib, but um, so the undertow is sort of organized in some ways around what I think of as three theological movements in the Trumpocene. And um, the first in 2016, as I was sort of traveling, and I've been, you know, writing about right wing movements for 20 years. And so, so seeing how this evolves was the prosperity gospel and this the prosperity gospel is like the televangelist who says send money now and god wants me to have a, a private jet and if i get that private jet the blessings will trickle down to you and a lot of secular folks mistake that for the mainstream of evangelicalism it is a mainstream it wasn't the mainstream and what distinguished it in fact was it wasn't particularly political it was about the money what trump did was he politicized the prosperity gospel and he peddled it as um, as a as a campaign pitch in 2016, and what happened was that he had enough force that at first there was a lot of resistance from the evangelical establishment. Um, but it turns out that this Protestant movement, the pastors never had as firm a hold on their flocks as they thought, and the masses loved it and. So you, saw, you see folks like Franklin Graham, um, son of Billy, or Tony Perkins, head of something called the Family Research Council, at first very skeptical of Trump, and then pivoting, um, just as so many else on the right have. And I think, I think a way to understand this is with the sort of the long view of, of, of American fundamentalism and misunderstandings about American fundamentalism. When Trump came down that golden escalator in 2015. I sort of instantly recognized him as a contender, although he had not been much on my radar before that, in part because he so resembled the kinds of political figures American evangelicalism has long supported overseas in other countries. The strongman figure that is good enough for Indonesia or Somalia or Brazil, and now here as come home. And I knew through my work on this organization, The Family, that they were never naive that they never misunderstood who these dictators were, um, but they saw them as a means to an end. And so the surface piety that they seemed to demand in American politics 
you could almost imagine it was only a matter of time before that means to an end theology um, came home in the form of our own American strongman. And there are, of course, figures in the Bible who evangelicals like to point to, like King Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar or Ahab, who are, you know, imperfect, strong men who nonetheless contribute to the greater good in some way. So you, if you look, you know, like, I don't know, if you're looking for it, you can find, you can find biblical, you can find biblical support for a lot of things. It's been interesting lately that there's been this sort of ripple uh, within evangelical world between uh, evangelical women and evangelical men. Because when we look at King David's story, most secular people know David, you know, he slings his slingshot and he kills Goliath. And then he goes on to become king. Now, maybe, you know, he writes the Psalms. Well, the Psalms are pretty, so what, what a great guy. Um, but then we get into the story of Bathsheba. Um, and Bathsheba is the wife of his chief general in this war. And he spies on her while she's bathing. And he decides he wants her. So he sends his men to bring her to him. And, you know, I suppose the kindest reading you could give is he seduces her, but it reads a lot like he rapes her and then arranges to have her husband put in the line of fire so he'll be killed. And that's the good guy. Well, I'd been hearing the King David story in the political context, the evangelical political context for years. And they're quite aware. They said, I remember one, a man named uh, David Coe, an advisor to congressman. He says, and God likes this guy. What's with that? God likes the tool. Or as um, another figure I write about in the book, Lance Wallnau was one of the early adopters in evangelicalism of Trump, wrote a bestseller called God's Chaos Candidate. Um, uh, the man of action, the man who goes into the arena and gets things done, the man of action, um, a wrecking ball. This is coincidentally fascist language. The man of action is fascist language, is Mussolini language. And I think, uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, you know, would we ever have that kind of classical fascism in America? To be honest, I would have said no. I wrote in my book, The Family, that we wouldn't. There's more than one kind of bad under the sun. It wasn't that I was naive. I was just saying, um, we're never going to give up. American conservatives are never going to give up Jesus for a cult of personality. And they're never going to embrace the open pleasure in violence. The violence will always be there, but the open celebration of violence. Um, and that's the door that Trump opened. Um, that's the theological transformation that makes this, I argue in the book, uh, the Trumpocene. Whether or not Trump carries on or not, the age of Reagan, I would say, went from 1980 to 2016. Now we're in the Trumpocene. Do you think that Trump is happy with how things went on Tuesday? I mean, I don't care. Well, no, but I mean, it, it reinforces this idea that he's a martyr figure, even though he's never actually yeah. suffered at all, right? Right. Right. I would say that, like, I, I feel like some of a lot of the press has has uh, has focused on what he wants to happen and so on. And I think more, as you say, the martyrdom. So the book is organized around these sort of three theological movements. The first is the prosperity gospel, and that explains the sort of the evangelical embrace. The second is the Gnostic gospel, the gospel of conspiracies and secrets, mm -hmm. QAnon. But the third that began January 6, 2021, is an age of martyrs. Um, a martyr religion. And um, if we know our religious history, we know just how potent martyrs are. Some people say, well, Trump's not a martyr. You don't get to choose who other movements be as martyrs. Mm -hmm. Ashley Babbitt is the first martyr of this age of martyrs. And I kind of think she's been keeping the cross warm until uh, Trump could shove her aside and heave himself up there um, where he always intended to be. So whether Trump personally liked it or was outraged or not, more important to me, is the way in which this story is mutating um, and becoming, I think, potentially more dangerous. That said, I'm glad he was indicted. I'm not one of those who say, oh, uh, it's we shouldn't do it. We can't control what they're going to do with their martyrs, right? All we can do is pursue our own sense of, of what is good and what is true. Right. I mean, but the this you know, prosecuting a former president is unprecedented. Like this has never happened before. And so the question, this begs the question, do you think this is a one-off because Trump is so 
egregious or is it something that will open up a dangerous new normal where future presidents will be prosecuted by you know an opposing party or or i don't know it's george w bush is just like out there <laughs> he's painting he's fine <laughs> i mean open up a dangerous new normal i mean i mean it's <laughs> well we're already we're in a in dangerous it. new normal right we really yeah. are, I and mean, that's why the book is subtitled Slow Civil War. I get asked sometimes, is that really too much? And I sort of think of this the way, the first way I answer this is very personal. You know, I'm a Jewish dad of a queer kid, uh, a queer non-binary kid who is in the process of being criminalized right now in 20 states, whose school district is being sued, whose schools around us are stripping any sign of rain. We're in New Hampshire, not Florida. Mm -hmm. Stripping any sign of rainbows from their schools for fear. Um, uh, my kid's babysitter, who was a guidance counselor, had to leave her school because she came under fire. That's just for my child. All around the country, we have pregnant people who are dying for lack of reproductive health care. Those are casualties in the slow civil yeah. war. Every mass shooting at this point, at this point, I say, look, that's a slow civil war. And that's not to encounter all the little acts of violence that we don't hear about. If you pay attention, you know that there's armed standoffs almost every weekend outside a, a library or a hospital or a, a, a school or maybe a bar that's just hosting an event. Um, this is, we're in the slow civil war. The danger is here. We're already, I think, I believe, uh, you know, the book is organized around three songs, but one, the fourth song is Florence Reese's labor ballad from the 1930s, Which Side Are You On? I want to believe in nuance. I want to hold on to nuance at the same time when you look at a line of Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or Three Percenters, and I've met all these guys. I've seen their guns. I've had their guns pointed at me. Which side are you on? Um, are you in there in the library with the stories or are you out there with the guns? And if you're trying to sort of mediate between them, I, I, because we're entering a dangerous new normal, and I don't mean you, Violet, I mean, I get the temptation, right? Um, I, I think, uh, I think you are missing the moment, not paying attention to the signals, not listening to the stories the right is telling itself to paraphrase Joan Didion. Joan Didion famously says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. So misunderstood that line. Everyone thinks, isn't that wonderful? Oh, God, storytelling. It's, uh, art is so redemptive. Read the rest of that paragraph in Joan Didion's White Album. She doesn't mean it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Um, it depends on the story. And you better pay attention to the stories they are telling themselves in order to live, which right now are apocalyptic. Right. So do you feel like this will just, this will become a tit for tat thing where it's like, you know, people already want to impeach Joe Biden. They, the you know, Trump supporters see him as a criminal, perhaps not as great as a, of a criminal as the Clintons, but still a criminal. Do you think that this is going to, you know, that when Biden gets out of office, assuming there are Republicans in power, will he be prosecuted or can we even say at this point? I don't think it's a tit for tat thing. I think. Um, well, they talk about it in that way. That's why I'm saying. You know. Yes, the power elites talk about it that way. But I, this is you know, get out of Washington, get out of New York. That's the point of this book. And and I spent a lot of time in my life writing about elites of the right wing movement. Um, but this is not a tit for tat. It's rat a tat, and that's where they're thinking about. It. I'm thinking about a militia leader in uh, Wisconsin, Rob Brum. Um, who is the leader of a militia that he variously estimates at 6,000 or 7,000. It's probably half that, mm -hmm. right? But it's real. Um, and it's got a lot of guns. He invited me into his house and he's always open carrying. And I had already trespassed on his territory, on his, on his property. So I sort of said, I better say yes uh, and be polite here. Although he knew who I was. And we talked for two hours around his pool table in which he had set out an arsenal of AR-15s, long guns, sniper rifles, um, uh, a handgun he claimed was the Dirty Harry handgun, although I did my research and it's not the same <laughs> Ooh, gun. Oh, Dirty Harry used. <laughs> stacks, stacks and stack of ammunition. He had a cat, he had a cat named Twitch, which is an uneasy name when there's a lot of guns around. And the cat was just winding around through the guns and said, um, I said, uh, I thought I was being smooth. And I said, oh, can I take a picture of your cat? And he 
turns on the light and he says, sure. All the guns you can see on the table are the legal ones. Oh, <laughs> very, very kind of stuff. But he is not in a let's see what the Democrats do. Right. Mode. He is not in a, well, if they do that, we'll do this. He is moved on past that. At January 6th, or he was at one point, he says, now we're already in it. We're already in it. We will take ground. I, I can't tell you when, I can't tell you how, but you know, this is, this is happening now. We're not waiting to see what they are going to do. And that makes sense when you spend time with so many folks on the right. And not everyone believes in QAnon, but the majority of them have absorbed some element of that. They are in a, a demonic space. If you've got, say, Tucker Carlson, and I always think, you know, people who read Harper's, Imagine that maybe that we're the center of things. You and me, we're the fringe. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're the far fringe. The mainstream, the center, that's Tucker Carlson, whose, whose audience is bigger than every bit of left progressive liberal media combined, basically. Tucker Carlson is saying, you know, he's saying that trans folks are waging a war against Christianity. That's not tit for tat territory. That's, we have at, uh, you know, the things that we've been following and we know that are happening at CPAC, someone talking about uh, uh, the sort of eliminationist rhetoric of trans people. We're already flying around the country. Um, there's a flag that I write about in the book. Uh, I learned this term. I can barely pronounce it. Vexillology, the study of flags, mm -hmm. a necessary discipline in this moment, because around the country as I drive, hundreds of varieties of fascist flags, but one that I see more and more often, even around my home in Vermont, you may have seen it, uh, probably not in New York, but uh, an all, it's an all-black American flag, not black and white with a blue stripe. That's the thin mm -hmm. blue line, an anti-Black Lives Matter flag, as the creator of the flag told me. Like, I'm not interpreting. That's, that's what he meant it to be. Um, this one is just the American flag and just like very subtle distinctions of black. And what it stands for is no quarter, no mercy. The Civil War is coming and take no prisoners. When the shooting starts... Nobody on the other side is innocent. It's a genocidal flag. That flag I have seen in Vermont and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and New York and Wisconsin and Ohio and Indiana. And if I kept driving, I would see it more, right? That's not a tit for tat flag. That's a attack flag. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about flags because they have become such a part of uh conservative culture you know you you did an annotation for us about the the blue lives matter flag um there's lots of again there just seems to be you know there's you write about the flag for ashley babbitt and the sim symbolism yeah. there so what i mean obviously there's an element of pageantry when you come out you know you want to show you want to state proudly who you are you you know if it's at your home or if it's at a protest but why flags specifically well, I, you, you put it really well there, the, an element of pageantry. And I think about the ways in which a lot of political reporters discuss uh, uh, something like a Trump rally. And they'll sometimes say this, this little phrase, just theater. Mm. What do you mean, just theater? What do you mean, just theater? Uh, uh, how, how do we love Joan Didion and the stories we tell ourselves in order to live and then dismiss something as just theater? No such thing. The theater is the performance, right? We, we, we need to, to study performance uh, if we're going to understand it. And I'm looking at that pageantry. The, the penultimate chapter of the book called The Great Acceleration, named after a political philosophy that began on the left and has now been embraced by the right of accelerationism. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it began, I was driving my, my child out to Wisconsin for a, a program and we saw it take back roads. This was last summer. And... Um, you know, just like mile markers across upstate New York, we start seeing such a variety of far right and fascist and Trump flags. And, you know, I have a queer kid. How do I tell this kid uh, not to be paranoid, not to be afraid when we are driving past people who are flying the flag, not of let's agree to disagree, but of you shouldn't exist. But and what's worse is the great variety of flags because we had a long drive to Wisconsin my, my, my child and I you know they decided well we'll keep we'll keep account good flags mm. and bad flags and in the towns and the cities you see the rainbow flag you see the pride flag but here's the difference 
there's a couple varieties of pride flags, but it's basically the same flag. Most people buy them from Amazon. Um, there are hundreds of varieties of far right and fascist flags. And not only the hundreds of varieties, there are people making their own billboards. There are people painting silos. There are people carving trees, totem poles. This is fascist Americana. This is folklore. I have a friend who's a Smithsonian curator, Peter Mansell, and he's starting to think like, I need to be collecting this stuff as horrible as it is. I think as horrible as it is. And one of the things I want people to understand from this book so that we can oppose it is it's really tempting to see, to imagine that, um, to imagine that imagination is a virtue always. Um, the far right, the fascist movement now is filled with a very dark imagination. It's got a lot of energy. When you see that much variation of pageantry, right? You see people with a lot of energy. They're not just buying a flag from Amazon. They are thinking about how to make their whole house a statement. Yeah. As reporting that, that it's really easy for me because I all I need to do, you, you, you hang up a flag that, says, fuck Joe Biden, I can go knock on your door and say, tell me about that mm-hmm. flag. Um, or, or you've painted that on the side of your house. You've invited the question, but uh, I think that, yeah, the study of the aesthetics, fascism has always been an aesthetics, going back to yeah. futurism, Italian and Mussolini, yeah. right? Um, we need to pay attention to that. And especially stuff that we dismiss as buffoonery, yeah. like the Kunan shaman, which is buffoonery and is potent at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a return to uh, a you know a Germanic world where there are no Jews, blacks, women know their place. Everything is very neat and ordered. This this thing that never was right. Um, well, but it's also and it is yeah. I mean he he know, he knows he's he wants to be seen. <laughs> it's transgressive. I mean it, this this is no accident. Like when we started this conversation, we said you know how do evangelicals get over. Um, Trump's sort of, you know, his his, his uh, arrangements with porn stars, and is it that they um, forgive it or they don't admit it? And, and the third possibility is that they like it. We're in the sort of the age of, we are in the age of burn it down, um, and that is where the right. This is no establishment right. You increasingly encounter when you get out in the world, um, uh, when you get out either into the right wing intellectuals or the right wing everyday folks. People are like, yeah, I don't really think of myself as a conservative. They are utopians. Their utopia is, to me, dystopia, right? It is also an imaginary place. It's right there in Make America Great Again, or you know, any of the, you know, it's right there in in, in uh, Ron DeSantis's Florida, where woke goes to die, right? Um, that is a kind of dark utopianism um, that we can create a space uh, without conflict with the forces that we don't like queer folks uh uh, people of color who have not bought into the promise of whiteness because keep in mind one of the other things i write about in the book i start going to these militia churches these are churches with their own militias church glad tidings in yuba city california militia meeting every tuesday uh, uh lord of hosts in omaha nebraska these are very diverse churches um it's what Anthea Butler in her book, uh, uh, White Evangelical Racism, she calls the promise of whiteness, this idea that if you will submit to this ideology of white supremacy, that you too can partake of it. And I think that gives us an understanding of just the powerful gravity of fascism right now. If you can convince people of color, Jews, queer folks, to become part of that movement, not by becoming more inclusive, but by inviting them into the circle of hate. Um, oh, that's dangerous. That's terrifying. So I want to go back to Ashley Babbitt. Um, you know, you identified her as the first martyr of, you know, the, the Trump movement, right? And, you know, in your book, you, you, you note very interestingly that, you know, she was you know, certain eyewitnesses or other sort of eyewitnesses after the fact described her as young as 16. She, you know, she was very lightweight. She was blonde. Like Paul Gozar said her, you know, she was actually 110 pounds, not 115 pounds. So she's just this little light, little 
perfect white lady, but then also she's this avenging angel and she's, she's this very strong woman and she died for this, you know, this beautiful cause. I mean, and, but she also, she must be avenged, right? So what do you think protesters mean when they say justice for Ashley? Ah, they mean so much. And this is sort of, this is the way sort of white grievance always works is, is to take the wrongs that you do to another and then retell the story with yourself as a victim. From the moment I saw, you know, Ashley Babbitt killed on January 6, 2021, um, and we see this 35-year-old white woman, Air Force veteran, um, uh, but a small person. She was small. She was not 110 pounds, as Paul Gosar says, and she was not 16, as people would start saying, in aging her backwards into the innocence of white girlhood, yeah. right? Um, She's climbing into this window. Um, she uh, is not unarmed. The knife on the cover of the book is the knife she was carrying. That's an evidence photo. You can see it's dated 1621. Um, and it's a nasty little knife. <laughs> um, uh, um, but we see in the video, and there's a number of videos actually, there's more than the ones we've seen. And I've spent, oh my goodness, so much time sort of going through all of these endless hours of videos from that. We see um, the hands of the Capitol Police officers who, who, who shot her. Um, and they appear to be that of uh, those of a black man. And indeed they are, Lieutenant Michael Byrd. Um, as soon as I saw those hands and that white woman, as a student of American mythology, American history, I knew what was going to happen because that is one of the oldest stories. That's the American yes. story. That's the lynching story, right? They're going, and they did. It took hours before they were saying, um, uh, how come everyone cares about George Floyd, but when a white woman is killed by a black man, silence um, from the liberals, right? Um, when a white woman is killed by a black cop, uh, someone who has authority that maybe he shouldn't have in their imagination, right? Um, so the justice for Ashley. Now, it goes one step further about this, and, and this, this gets complicated. Um, it, as I, I write in the book, um, it probably was not a legitimate police shooting. Um, and I say that, people say, what? She's a domestic terrorist. Yes, um, you don't get to just shoot domestic terrorists. She had a knife. You don't get to shoot. Uh, I spent I spent a lot of time reporting on police violence, and for this, I reached out to a man named Seth Stoughton, who is sort of literally wrote the book on police use of force. Was the uh, a key prosecution witness in the prosecution of Derek mm -hmm. Chauvin, uh, explaining a former police officer himself saying, "Let me tell you exactly why what Derek Chauvin did is in no way justified." And Stoughton reviewed the video with me and said, yeah, um, this won't be prosecuted uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because of where it was. The Capitol is actually this sort of gray area of law. That's a long, complicated thing. But here's the real kicker. If Republicans had passed the George Floyd Act, that cop probably would have been prosecuted. It's about intention. This is the excuse cops always have. Did you believe you were in fear of your life? Doesn't matter whether you were. Did you believe, well, how do you prove not prove that, right? Yes, yeah, sure, I believed it, right? This cop, by his own admission, shot on the mistaken assumption. He believed shots had already been fired. They hadn't. Uh, that was a mistake. So when they say they want justice for Ashley, there's a, a very bitter irony that they can't acknowledge, um, which is uh, this is not maybe how we want policing to happen. Um, but they will ne the, the politicians of the movement are the very ones that killed any attempt at, at killed the George Floyd Act, um, killed any attempt at reform. I think, though, when they speak of justice for Ashley, though, that's that that's the surface level. The mythological level is what they want justice for Ashley. Um, uh, it's well, I write about um, I write a lot about movies in this book um, because these are stories that people keep understanding their lives through. But this one um, uh, was uh, uh, D.W. Griffith's 1915 Birth right. of a Nation. Um, one of the most influential First movies. movie screened at the and, White House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the template for so much mm -hmm. of Hollywood, right? And in the story, and I <laughs> included still in the book, a white woman freeing a, a black man, a predator, uh, and she leaps to her death rather than be ravaged mm -hmm. by him. 
setting into motion the story, which is going to be the vengeance narrative. It's based on a novel called The Klansman, as in the Klan. Um, first movie short screened in the White House, uh, 1915 D.W. Griffith, right? That's the justice they want. They want the justice of blood. They want the justice of chaos. They want the justice of revenge. It sounds like I'm accusing them of something. I'm not. You know, Trump himself says it. I am your retribution. And there was some there were some commentators and there are some people perhaps uh, who still, you know, they they don't see the what happened on January 6, 2021 as, you know, this this insurgency, this, um, this, you know, this attempt to overturn democracy, because once the rioters who went into the U.S. Capitol building, they didn't go farther. Like they, once they were inside, they kind of like walked around and they fucked around with like Nancy Pelosi's desk. But why didn't, why didn't they, having spent, you know, so much time researching and spending time with people who, you know, are part of these movements. Why didn't they overturn democracy or do or do 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 something more than just sort of like live stream? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, there's sort of two things there. There's the, there, social media as a as a powerful destabilizing force cuts both yeah. ways, and um, it, it it can gut movements on the left and it can really distract movements on the right too it it was what enabled trump to get those people there but it was also now i've got to i think about a man i i, I met at a, ra a rally for ashley babbitt in um, sacramento california he's one of the speakers george riley um he uh, he invaded the capitol a local republican official invaded the capitol using um the uh, uh the covid relief money the check that we all got um <laughs> great i'm gonna use that to go to washington um he wore what he described as war paint and um uh, uh white feathers in his hair he um, describes himself as a iroquois blackfoot uh a native american um posted videos couldn't resist once again in. he said he posted a video of himself in the capitol saying is this me taking my land back but his great grievance was when he got to Nancy Pelosi's desk, we've all seen that photo of uh, Richard Barnett with his feet yeah. up on the desk. And he got all the credit, says Riley. He says, I pulled down my pants and rubbed my ass on her <laughs> desk. Um, why am I not a hero? Um, and he is. He's a local hero in the Sacramento fascist scene. The Proud Boys all there love him. Um, but, uh, um, and he's facing, you know, prosecution. He, he He's... It's funny. He said, I've got six charges against me. I look into it. It was three. <laughs> like they, they want yeah, more yeah. of this. But but, you know, um, why? First of all, they're still held back by the sort of the reverence for police. And he says, like, you know, no, the police were on our side on January 6th. You know, there was a couple skirmishes, but then we hugged it out. <laughs> they did not hug it out. One hundred and fifty cops were injured. Uh, five uh, died uh, in that day or in the aftermath. Right. Um, they didn't hug it out. Um, but he sees the cops. This is at the Sacramento rally, which turned into a brawl between Proud Boys and Antifa. Um, and there's about, I don't know, 500,000 cops there. Um, I mean, there's a lot, just uh, columns of cops, horse cops, bike cops. And he says, of course, the cops are on our, are on our side. Why does he think this? Because every time there's a skirmish, what do the cops do? They grab an Antifa. Um, they did not grab any of these proud boys who knew the line, they knew they couldn't carry weapons on the Capitol grounds. So those with knives stayed just off that on the sidewalk. Um, and again, like, so why didn't it go further on January 6th? That's the other fascinating thing. There were so many more weapons there than people realize. Yeah. Most of the January 6ers I've talked to, like, oh, I think of the, the, the militia guy in Wisconsin who always carries, were you carrying at the Capitol? And he says, let's just say I didn't get mugged in Washington, which in his imagination is what happens to a white man in a right. city unless he has a big gun, right? He had a gun. Um, uh, it's kind of amazing that more shots weren't fired. And I think some of the people, a lot of lefties are, are sort of like, why didn't they open fire? I studied the Ashley Babbitt videos. There's three cops lining the door and it's a scary situation. The mob is uh, smashing the windows right next to their head and they stay completely passive and then they slide out of the way. They know, in fact, 
that reinforcements are coming, mm -hmm. riot cops with, with uh, assault rifles. Um, why didn't they, I, I managed to get the police record and why didn't they withdraw their guns? Because any cop is trained. If you're surrounded by a crowd and you draw, draw your gun, you're going to lose your gun. Um, uh, they're going to use your gun against you, as they wanted to do with Officer Fanon, who was beaten instead with a flag. Um, uh, it's amazing that more cops, I don't want to be a cop defender, that more cops didn't lose their cool that day because there were so many guns there. And if it had started firing, who knows what could have happened. It's counterfactual to say why it didn't go further, but it has gone further because look at Florida, look at Tennessee, Tennessee, where they just ousted three Democratic lawmakers the other day simply for protesting uh, gun yeah. violence. Um, the, the violence of January 6th has been institutionalized. Why didn't they topple democracy? They did. Actually, I'll quote a bit from this this piece that uh, Lewis Lapham wrote was published in the August 2001 issue of uh, Harper's, which means it was written two months earlier, at least. And he talks about this idea of American innocence. And he writes, quote, if every now and then an American commits a monstrous crime, Lee Harvey Oswald, Lieutenant Callie, Timothy McVeigh, the action is declared un-American, senseless, unthinkable. So contrary to the laws of nature and the will of God, it can be intelligibly discussed only by senior churchmen and high-priced psychiatrists. Never intrinsic to the American landscape or the American character, evil is a deadly and unlicensed import, an outlandish disease smuggled in through customs and a shipment of German philosophy or Asian rice. And I was struck by that because you, what you, you know, you're, you're uh, in the chapter we were talking about Ashley Babbitt um, and sort of what she's become in death. Um, you 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 write very uh, you write about this sense of innocence and white grievance and white justification and imposing the violence that is done Ameri you know white Americans have done on everybody else on them right so so I would love to hear more about what how do people kind of snap out of this on on the left in the center to realize that this is this is a this is a real force. And there's there's guns backing this up. Yeah, I mean, I look at things like the success of the 1619 project, and I pay attention to dates in the way that, for instance, Ashley Babbitt had almost sort of displaced in the Trinity. Instead of Father, Son, Holy Ghost, she had Father, Son, and the Spirit of 1776. Mm. And the way I would hear that, the Spirit of 1776 spoken of in churches. And, and then I thought of the way that we're on different timelines. Uh, Others of us who are paying attention are sort of thinking about 1619 as, as an origin story of the United States. And we might think of, um, uh, you know, the genocide of uh, indigenous people as the original sin. And so um, I think that innocence, if I could actually read just a few lines from, uh, I think this sort of gets at it. It's in a, it's in a subsequent chapter um, in Wisconsin and I was driving around Wisconsin after the Dobbs decision, the overfall of Roe and encountering mm -hmm. guns everywhere and guns and great concern amongst um, uh, the folks with them for the babies. And I said, predicting violence the night Dobbs came down, Fox News pundit Monica Crowley described pro-choice America as a death cult. The left calls the right a death cult too. But for all its guns and punisher skulls and actual killers, Fascism is actually worse than a death cult. It's an innocence cult. The belief that one might be as innocent of history, read, race, as a fetus is of the world. Perfect and pink, white, unbloody in the Dobbsian imagination of the womb. The gun, too, is made clean by the cult of innocence, born again not as a tool of aggression, but of defense, as the protection of purity, inscribed by a growing number of manufacturers with stars and stripes and biblical verses, advertised as a form of evangelism, a means of spreading God's goodness in the world, like a baby, the fetus and the gun, small marvel nobody's yet put them together on a flag. And I will bet money that they are going mm. to, um, that, that will happen. And I think that innocence, when we understand the, the role of that innocence, right? That's why they're aging Ashley. That's why they're insisting that Ashley is younger and a child. 
um, that's so much of uh, the resistance to so-called creative race theory or critical mm -hmm. race theory. Um, uh, parental rights. This, right, parental rights, right? You know, don't talk to kids about sex. Um, uh, um, this innocence. Don't talk to high school. In Florida has now said, don't say gay right up to high school. 18 year olds, they don't know anything about sex. Um, you know, uh, this is an innocence cult. And I don't mean innocence as any kind of good thing. Innocence and purity. This has always been the language of fascism. It's always been a lie. Um, uh, and um, I do think that a danger for the left is trying to respond to the innocence cult of the right with some other kind of innocence. Let us, let us, let us embrace the complexity of our experience. And then finally, I want to go back to Trump because you know, unlike other Republicans, Trump isn't leaning to the anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric. You know, there has been a a shocking amount of incredibly harmful legislation passed on the state level. But then there are also Republican candidates who ran on that platform and were largely defeated. I mean, the exception of that would be uh, J.D. Vance. But what do you make of Trump's refusal to engage with that? And do you think that despite all of the violence and the, the constant, you know, real tangible threat that queer people uh are subjected to outside of the coast. Do you think there might actually be hope here that, you know, because everyone's mad about the repeal of Roe or that people don't actually have a problem with trans people? Well, I guess I would probably dispute some of the terms. One, um, I would start with the coast. It's not outside the coast. I'm in blue Vermont, New Hampshire. Uh, there's a trans kid in a school a few districts over here in Vermont. Um, the whole town turned against them. Get this kid out of the locker room, right? As I said, my my kids' uh, high school in a very blue district uh, in a, 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 a mostly blue state um, uh, is under assault. So it's there, right? It's there. It's there's as much anti queer violence in New York City as in you know all of a small state like Wyoming. Oh, no, no, no. I don't. I certainly don't want to mean to imply that like New York, New York is this beacon of enlightenment. <laughs> but but yeah. there is, you know, this yeah. is this legislation. Yeah. The, the, this isn't. Yeah. Legislatively, legislatively. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and but also I think Trump, it's not been with what he's been leading with, like Ron DeSantis, but he has, in fact, invoked many times now, you know, saving women's sports. Um, uh, and the rhetoric of, of, of anti-trans hate, which is a rhetoric of anti-queer um, anti hate, which is a rhetoric of fundamental misogyny. I mean, that's sort of one of the undertoes that I'm following in this book is how the extreme misogyny of, of what used to be a kind of transgressive right has become a mainstream uh, point of view. And I think the other thing to understand about Trump, and there's a, a few essays, one thing is that, you know, there's a, I meet a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska, who tells his church, he says, Trump is coming back, um, whether the man himself or his spirit, <laughs> you know, clothed in the flesh of another. So don't get caught up on, is Trump up or down? Don't even get caught on, up on, is Trump or DeSantis? The issue is fascism. In the same way that I always get so distracted when people talk about Trump's weight. My problem with him is not his right. weight. It's his fascism. My problem with him is not his comb over. It's his fascism. Um, uh, I think that, um, uh, I think to understand the just theater of Trump is to, you know, before, before we started recording, we were talking about Trump's recent turn to speaking of the special, uh, prosecutor, Jack, uh, Smith, um, as, uh, that's not his real name. And we discovered looking in some of the right-wing forums, uh, uh, truth social and, uh, a telegram that a lot of his followers don't know what he's talking about. The implication, of course, is that it, he has a Jewish name that he has changed it to. I don't know if this is true or not. Smith can be a Jewish name. There are plenty of Jewish Smiths, um, and it doesn't matter. Um, the point is a kind of collaborative storytelling. Isn't that sound wonderful? Mm -hmm. That's how 
Trump has always worked. There's so much he doesn't have to say because he knows his crowds will say it for mm -hmm. him. He talks even now, especially now, because I think he's crossed over and in this age of martyrs, he is no longer, he's no longer peddling the con. He has, he has used his own product. He has gotten hooked mm -hmm. on it. Um, there's an essay in the book called TikTok and it's a turning point in August 2020, an interview with Laura Ingram, who is there like so much of the right wing media to sort of clean him up a little bit and make him presentable. And she can't do it. He's talking about dark shadows. And she says, uh, do you mean uh, Obama's people? And he says, no, these are people you don't even know their names. Um, and then he starts talking about men in black uniforms and they're in airplanes and he switches to the present tense. They're in <sighs> airplanes ahead of us over us right now. And Laura Ingram, you can see this is not what she wants to no. say. She is trying to bring this back. Trump is not playing, winking at QAnon as he had in the past. Trump is down there in, he's created a nightmare and now he's dreaming it too. And part of that nightmare is the anti-queer hate, which is the current front line of fascism. It won't be the last. Um, which is also, you know, you hear so many liberals saying, that's terrible what they're doing to the trans people. What do you mean what they're, do they're doing to humans and they're going to do yeah. it to you. They're going to do it to themselves. Fascism comes for everybody. It's a black hole. It will come for fascists themselves. So I, I when you, that's sort of like where I say, like, I don't, I don't think Trump has refused to engage mm. in that. Uh, I think he's doing a fascist call and response. Uh, I, sp I say them. And you say whoever you hate, right. right? You fill it in. And together we tell a story of retribution. Yeah. That's so, just a downer. I know that was the last <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> I don't think, right. That's, I'm, I'm kind of trying to give voice to the fascist story as they mm -hmm. experience it. Um, I think that's really important, right? I do think we need to understand that so we can understand the fault lines. But fascism peddles a kind of gravitational story of inevitability, and inevitability is a lie. And the book is bookended with two essays of, of a kind of hope, not cheap grace. I knew from the beginning of the book what the last line was. I First thing I wrote when I was writing to it, for a while it was possible not to be scared even. It's an old line from a forgotten singer named Lee Hayes from the 1950s, a radical, um, talking about driving through a dark night in Arkansas with some labor organizers and violence was in the air and they were singing hymns to keep themselves going. And he says, for a while it was possible not to be scared even. That is the hope we have now. Not the hope that, oh, maybe Trump and DeSantis will take each other out. Maybe this will all pass. Maybe if we ignore them, they'll go away. Um, maybe we'll just win in Wisconsin and we'll just keep on winning. No, the hope is the long struggle. So they've got their inevitability story. We've got our possibility story. And I like that's better. <laughs> well, could I just tack one thing on if you have the time? Because oh, yeah, do you, because obviously there's, there's criticism from both the left and the right that covering Trump, even, you know, it's cable news is playing into Trump's hands by covering the trial as this giant spectacle, right? To, to what extent do you think that's true? Or do you think that, you know, perhaps there's a more responsible way to cover these things? You know, to, to say that, okay, yeah, this former president broke the law. He's being prosecuted. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a the subtitle of the book is Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Um, it could also be subtitled How to Write Stories About Fascism, <laughs> except that sounds prescriptive, like I've got the answer, mm -hmm. and I don't. Um, I, the very beginning of the book, I say, you know, here's the prelude. Prelude is usually after the fact, but I'm writing from the middle of something. Um, I am, in fact, in this book, there's the undertow of the title. And in the long title essay, there's footnotes and they're not academic. They're me sort of thinking like, wait a minute, how do this is how we tell stories about this stuff. But is that the right way? There's an undertow of questioning. How do we tell stories about fascism? I think the idea that um, we deal with it by looking away or focus on the good news. Um, yeah, focus on the good news. But if you have I the mean, luxury, as to. I said, I, I'm, I'm a Jew with a queer kid. I need to know where the guns yeah. are aimed. I need to know about the guns in my own community, and they are here, right? I need to know this stuff. That I don't have that that uh, that privilege. 
and I don't really think any of us do. Some of us just haven't recognized it yet. But you look at something like, um, oh, I wrote a lot about uh, uh, just the other day, just yesterday, about Leslie Stahl's 60 Minutes interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which was could have been titled How Not to Tell Stories. Oh, my God, where she's she's doing the pull ups in her 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 her, her uh, garage gym and all that. <laughs> Yeah, but I will, some lefties are saying, oh, this is six minutes. They want to normalize fascism. No, absolutely not. They don't want to. Leslie Stahl imagines, she thinks that she made a devastating critique with her arched eyebrow and her simple. Yeah, wow. exactly. Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene says that the Democratic Party of pedophiles, because she still imagines that she's the center and that with an arched eyebrow, she can dispatch a fringe yeah. character. Marjorie Taylor Greene is bigger than Leslie Stahl. She's the center. Mm -hmm. We're not. Th that was the old way of speaking from the establishment, but the est that's gone. So I don't buy this, hey, let's not talk about Trump. Let's not talk about this stuff. I don't buy that at all. I do think, yeah, the cable coverage, um, you know, talking about, is this good for Trump? No, that's horse race mm -hmm. stuff. I can't believe we're in 2024. It does look like we are gearing up to do another round of horse race election. Trump's up. DeSantis down. Can Nikki Haley really win? Who cares? Really? Who cares? Three flavors of fascism. That's the story. And our job is to go out and talk to everyday people, not in diners. I mean, you can go to a diner. That's fine. But then keep going. Keep going. How is this being received? Where are the fault lines? Where are the fracture lines? Because the, the right wants you to think it's monolithic. And to be honest, a lot of mainstream media coverage wants you to think the right is monolithic too, partly because that's what horse race coverage does. It views things in mm -hmm. blocks. Um, the, but there are all kinds of fault lines within this movement. And that's good news yeah. because we can press on those fault lines. Um, in fact, we have to if we're going to survive. That does mean knowing about them, um, not seeking common ground, but knowing about, hey, what does the world look like to Ashley Babbitt, to a militia leader in Wisconsin, to um, to a proud boy in Sacramento? Um, you know, that, I think, is the reporting that we need to start learning how to do more of. Well, thank you so much. This was really wonderful speaking with you. You've been listening to The Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Aria Cohen-Wade, with production assistance by Ian Montagani. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national and international conversation through long-form journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $16.97, visit harpers.org save.